0: This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm Sarah Talia. Dementia is the loss of cognitive function and the World Health Organization states that more than 55 million people currently live with dementia worldwide. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia. It affects a person's memory, language and problem solving and thinking abilities, severely impacting their quality of life. There is currently no cure for Alzheimer's, but a breakthrough drug developed by a team at Curtin University could drastically slow the progression of the disease. To explore this topic, I was joined by Professor John Mammo and Professor Virginia Lamb from the Curtin Health and Innovation Research Institute If you'd like to find out more about this research, you can visit the links provided in the show notes. John, you were on the podcast in 2019 to talk about Alzheimer's disease, but since then, you and your team have been very busy developing further research into a toxic protein called amyloid beta and its potential link to Alzheimer's. Can you tell us about what you found?
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Um, Yeah, we had a hypothesis that really commenced about 10 years ago, and it was along the lines that what might lead to the trigger for Alzheimer's disease might be uh, corruption of microscopic vessels in the brain called capillaries. These are the smallest of blood vessels, you can't see them with the naked eye. And what our early lines of research inquiry suggested was that there was something occurring outside of the brain, something being secreted into blood, which compromised those microscopic vessels. Then there was leakage occurring into the brain, and this caused some inflammation, and the brain cells began to die. Um, The breakthrough discovery, which really was only realised in 2021, where we published a really substantial paper, is about eight years ago, we had deliberately wanted to test the hypothesis in the most robust way possible, and that was to genetically engineer some mice, make them human-like in some ways, to see whether this pathway that alzheimer's might occur from outside of the brain was actually just a you know a crazy idea or one which really had some relevance to it and the gist of the findings were as follows so probably a number of your listeners would know that in alzheimer's disease it's characterized by the accumulation of protein in the brain uh, called amyloid beta and if that protein persists in brain it can compromise the viability of brain cells they will die you'll get silent inflammation and cognitive Um, loss occurs later on in life. Um, Our hypothesis was, and the discovery was, that amyloid beta is also made outside of the brain, and it's actually secreted as um, a primary physiological function, which is to regulate how fats are metabolized. So all of us get our LDL cholesterol level measured periodically, and LDL is one of these Um, complexes in blood, which transport um, lipids in the aqueous environment of the blood. And amyloid is one of the proteins which tells those lipids where to go to. And the gist of our discovery was that if one produces too much amyloid over too long a period of time, it will progressively compromise the integrity of those brain capillaries. And the whole lipoprotein, the lipid, the fat amyloid complex leaks into the brain, and that's what causes the inflammation. Now, the exciting thing about that is twofold. One is that if this is really a pathway for Alzheimer's disease, then we've got a target to identify and develop prevention strategies. And we've done a lot of work, which says that we know components of the diet can influence how much of the fat amyloid you have in blood We know that certain um, metabolic conditions, such as diabetes, could also play a role. So we've got some ways of reducing it, just like we reduce cardiovascular disease with various interventions. But it also provides us some opportunities, potentially, for treatment. And one of the major lines of research inquiry that Virginia and the others in the team and I have been pursuing, is we've identified uh, a drug that was used many, many years ago to reduce cardiovascular disease risk, which has a really profound effect on how much of this fat amyloid is being secreted into blood. And in the studies which um, led to a clinical trial, which we launched last year, those studies found in our animal models that if you suppress the amount of lipoprotein amyloid in blood, you'll preserve the brain capillaries, you won't get leakage into the brain, and the brain cells remain healthy. Um, and cognitive function is kept constant. So that's really exciting because it's a historic drug that was used clinically. We already know quite a bit about it. We know its safety and tolerability. And um, we were fortunate to have a really good team of um, of, uh, leading um, discipline physiologists and medical people. And we were able to secure some funding through the Medical Research Future Fund to launch a clinical trial commencing initially in Perth, uh, looking at people with um, early Alzheimer's and whether this strategy is going to be effective in supporting cognitive function.
0: So you've been mentioning we a couple of times, I'm going to yeah. welcome Virginia in. When you're talking about those clinical trials, Virginia, you and the team have begun those trials of the drug probicol, which John has been pointing to. The trial will test whether probicol can prevent amyloid beta from leaking into the bloodstream and into the brain. Can you tell me more about how probicol works? You've touched on it a bit there, John, but also what do you hope to discover from this trial?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on here today. Um, So yeah, like John um, covered before, Alzheimer's disease is a very multifaceted disease. So you've got breakdown of brain capillaries, so the tiny vessels um, that essentially protect you from the peripheral meta- uh, metabolism, from the brain, um, as well as inflammation and oxidative stress. So what is really important is to identify an intervention that can actually target all three of these mechanisms as well as other mechanisms as well. So what probicol actually does, it's, it's we call it the wonder drug, um, but essentially it, um, it's able to target um, a number of these mechanisms more or less at the same time, so we've shown in our animal model studies, is able to reduce inflammation in the brain, is able to protect the vasculature, so the brain capillaries, Um, and all in all, it can actually support cognitive function in these animal models of Alzheimer's disease that we've worked with. So we're actually the, the only uh, team in the world that we're aware of that's using probicol, um for this indication for Alzheimer's disease. So at the end of this two year um, randomized control trial, we're hoping to see stabilization of cognitive performance. Um, so we're hoping to see less um, degenerative changes seen in the brain. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we've been working on for the last couple of years and we're hoping this transpires to, to helping, you know, there's millions of people that have dementia right now and that's expected to to keep growing unless we find a preventative cure. And so if that is the
0: case, if probicol uh, is found to stabilise cognitive performance with early Alzheimer's, what could be the impact of that? How significant is it?
2: Well, the impact can potentially be huge. Um, Probicol has been historically used as a lipid-lowering drug so the the safety and the tolerability um, of the drug is very, very well characterised already. So, you know, you can kind of not necessarily skip a lot of the the phase one trials required to to get a drug through, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, understood about how the drug works. Um, So, yeah, I think um, what we we hope to find by the end of the trial is that we can prevent or, you know, stop the Alzheimer's process from, from getting worse.
0: And, Virginia, you mentioned that there are millions of people that are are affected already. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization predicts that 139 million people will be living with dementia by 2050. And for for context, it's estimated more than 55 million people are living with dementia Mm -hmm. right now, with Alzheimer's being the most common form of dementia. What are some of the reasons
2: behind that really high forecast? Couple of things. So, um, with the the global age increasing rapidly and population increasing rapidly as well, so you've got more and more people in the age bracket that are at greater risk of developing um, dementia. And, like you said, the most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. So, you know. There's a lot of risk factors um, that can be modified through lifestyle and environmental factors as well. So obviously, some genetic factors do um, increase risk of people getting Alzheimer's disease, um, but there are certainly lifestyle factors that um, we can all control. Um, so, for instance, um, vascular risk factors—you um, know—and there's also like obesity as well, and stroke with the um, cardiovascular heart disease as well. So. Yeah, it's it's really controlling these risk factors, um, whether it's controlling eating our dietary patterns, um, whether it's behavioural changes, you know, sedentary lifestyle. So there's there's a lot in that, particularly you know, um, with with dietary factors, ad, adaptation of Western style diet. So there's a lot of people that aren't looking after their diet. So that's one of the things that we can we can definitely just work on initially. So what are, John, what are
0: some of the current treatment options for people that are, who are living with Alzheimer's?
1: So unfortunately, um, not real good in my opinion. Now, there has been a lot of hype in very recent times. So if I can explain to you the various class of drugs and how they essentially work. So there's a couple of strategies, uh, drug strategies, which are there to treat people who have cognitive impairment. One essentially is to try and support the crosstalk between brain cells to get them to communicate better. Um, usually people who take those class of drugs will get, uh, only some will benefit for a short period of time and it won't be sustained. Then there's another class of drugs which target a particular um, toxic component which tends to build up, not amyloid, it's a different pro- it's a different com- component. Um, and similarly to the other drug which supports communication between cells, some people will benefit for a short amount of time. The last 12 or 18 months, there's been um, a lot of media attention about a new class of drugs which have been designed to chisel away at that accumulation of protein, this amyloid protein which occurs in the brain, which is thought to cause the disease process. Um, There's a lot of trouble initially um, developing those drugs safely for human use. Um, but the latest studies have shown that these drugs are very effective at reducing the amount of plaque material which is accumulated in brain. And just at the end of last year at the um, probably the world's biggest stage for clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease, which was held in San Francisco, uh, a lot of attention on a new drug called Lacanumab. Um, so this is one of these um, therapies that chisel away at this toxic plaque protein. The controversy, in my opinion, and many in the area are are really quite concerned about, is that it it was undeniable that the drugs effectively reduced the amount of amyloid accumulation in brain. However, when you actually took a look at the effect it had on cognition, i.e. the memory and the behavior and so forth, there was no difference between people who were randomized to the placebo control. So the best readout I think you can get from these later studies is that um, they've developed a, a strategy to potentially change the pathological course of the disease. But at the moment, they're not sufficiently effective to have any real impact on the person living with the disease. Now, the reason um, many are concerned about this is these interventions are a hugely costly. We're talking like, you know, $55,000 US per annum. They require intravenous injections with about one in five people having a serious adverse event to that. So you have to weigh up. If you want to go down that course of intervention, um, whether, you know, what's what's the benefit to the person living with the disease? Um, And that's arguable. The precursor uh, drug Prior to Lacanabab, which was approved early last year, um, probably in the first quarter of last year, the FDA, that's the regulatory body in the United States, their system is to appoint an expert advisory panel to review the evidence of efficacy. And 10 out of 11 or 10 out of 12, I can't remember, had recommended not to approve the drug because the evidence wasn't there of any effect, any benefit nonetheless the regulatory authority approved it and no one can understand why why would you have an expert panel who understand these studies to give you advice only to ignore that advice and you know that that's bewildering and in Australia we've got the therapeutic goods administration and we'll have to see what their advice is by way of approving lacanumab. it's very likely that it might be approved but you know from my perspective um, I don't think we've got any pharmacological intervention that significantly alters the course of the disease. I think it's more um, hype to provide hope than real effectiveness. Um, Our strategy is very different. We're looking at uh, preventing the accumulation of the drug and most importantly, preserving those brain capillaries because at the end of the day, brain cells have to utilise energy and nutrients coming from the blood supply, and that's only delivered by way of those microscopic blood vessels. If you lose their integrity, then you're doomed, essentially. So ours is quite different. It's a very vascular focused. It still has an amyloid consideration in that we think it's the amyloid in the blood that's disrupting the capillary integrity. Um, and we think the deposition of that amyloid in the brain, which you see very late in the disease process, is really end stage. It's it's consequence. It's not cause. So I think they're targeting too late downstream with the current drugs that they're using.
0: What could be the impact if that does if that is approved by the TGA? on the studies that are underway at the moment?
1: For the existing drugs or yeah. for ours? For yours. For oh, well, look, for ours, I mean, let's be really hopeful. We don't have, you know, we don't have any results yet. Uh, our study is a double blind, and it'll be some years away before we have that data. But in the best case scenario, you know, at the moment, um, dementia is the biggest cause of death for women in Australia, second biggest cause of death for the uh, population overall, global population, which is getting older, as Virginia indicated, Uh, And in my opinion, and that of many others, we have no effective therapies on the horizon. This is one of the most costly diseases to manage. And it will, there's forecasts, um, there've been massive reports on it. It will notionally cripple health systems worldwide, unless we go to a system where we just ignore it, you know, lock people up and leave them to perish. Um, it is frightening if you look into the details of what's ahead. So we need really to identify strategies around prevention and strategies for treatment. Um, and if you can just slow the disease by, you know even you know five to ten percent, because this occurs normally much later in life, then there's other biological factors which will come in, you know, cardiovascular disease or cancer or you know something else which will which will uh, mean we'll see less incidents of um, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. I just might say that when you survey older age people globally, in, at least in Western countries where the data is available, their biggest concern by an order of magnitude is around dementia. You know, people, you know, there's, uh, you know, people fear all sorts of you know, death. It's a scary thing for many of us. Um, But people are most concerned, older age people, older age Australians are most concerned about losing their ability to reason and to communicate and independence and recognition of their loved ones and families. It's their biggest fear and that's by an order of magnitude compared to other major uh, causes of death and disability in this country.
0: Given that fear and given the rates of um, death that go alongside this uh, disease, are you surprised there isn't more urgency in this space, obviously, that is within your team, but outside of that?
1: Look, uh, I think there's a a huge global effort to sort of look for um, strategies to treat disease. Um, You know, I I think the way research is funded internationally, if you are pushing for a paradigm shift, it's incredibly hard to get funding, and we've experienced that. Um, For us to eventually secure funding um, to support our preclinical, that's before we went to clinical studies and the clinical trial, um, was exhausting because the reviewers who look at your grants and your applications are so wedded to a school of thought which is entrenched. Um, So that's always really, really difficult. Um, I'd like to think that... um, us suggesting that alzheimer's is really a disease of vascular origin we're kind of reopening a an old hypothesis in some ways i think that would hopefully encourage um, a lot more interest and this this possibility that the disease can occur outside of the brain because of things that are occurring around the way we metabolize fats, provides tremendous opportunity the one great opportunity we have with probicol is that um, there's no intellectual property that could be protected. There's too much we've published our results in our preclinical and in some ways that was intentional. So there's, you can't protect that commercially. So drug companies can't capitalize on that. And probicol is very cheap to manufacture. It's incredibly stable. So in the best case scenario, and it would be a legacy you know, um, departure for me if I, when I leave research eventually, but the legacy wish for me would be that probicol had some efficacy, You know, we can support people so they can get another two or three years of good quality life, slow that disease down um, by providing them a drug which is going to be globally available. So there's many pharmaceutical companies that will make generic drugs and because they're selling so much of it, they're still going to make a very handsome profit. So, you know, at the end conclusion of this um, study, if it works, it can go global very quickly.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of people listening that are crossing their fingers right now for the whole team and and for the study. Uh, before we move on to the next part, Virginia, I just wanted to ask you, you touched on it uh, briefly a moment ago, mm. what are the ages that are most at risk for Alzheimer's and some of the lifestyle changes you might be able to make in the lead up to that to reduce mm. your chance of being... Um, of having the
2: disease. Sure. So um, there's different age groups that affect um, are affected by Alzheimer's disease, but it's mostly the individuals individuals over 65 years of age and above that are mostly affected by the late stage um, of the disease. So talking about lifestyle factors, um, you know, thinking about different saturated fats, trans fats that can actually increase the amyloid beta burden that we've been talking about that probiotic can actually target. Um, so you know, thinking about um, you know just lifestyle choices as well being active um, cognitive training as well is just I like to think of Alzheimer's like um, disease in like heart disease in the brain really is is really keeping the brain active keeping it healthy uh, keeping the vasculature so all the brain capillaries we've been talking about keep them nice and you know functioning optimally
1: do you mind if I add a couple of points just to that if you don't mind um, there's two things that I think um, often get overlooked, which I think are really important. Um, but, you know, a global phenomenon is our drinking culture. And Australia's got a huge drinking culture. And the al- we know alcohol affects the integrity of the brain capillaries. Um, it probably makes them more leaky. And, uh, you know, our view as, a, as, as physiologist in our team is that it's the cumulative effect of multiple insults That put you at risk of developing any neurological disorder, not just Alzheimer's disease. Um, So when you think of what you're doing over decades of life, you know, from a teenager when you're getting let loose, um, you know, from our point of view, every every poor meal you have, every alcohol drink that you have, you're adding you're adding a level of insult there. So it's hard to persuade people to think of long term events and effects that are occurred decades in life later. But it is a slippery slope we're all on. And occasionally it's good to reflect on, you know, when you're going through periods of life celebrating things, you know, can you reduce those insults and reduce that cumulative effect? The other one I just wanted to mention is that we do talk about, you know, brain training and you use it or lose it. The other critically important thing is uh, around um, getting good quality sleep uh, and resting the brain so often people come home exhausted from work what do they do They might have a glass of wine you know everyone's being fed sit in front of the TV you're absolutely exhausted but you've got visual processing auditory processing and it just continues to go on and your brain is the most energy demanding organ that you can possibly imagine it's got more spark plugs to utilize glucose than anything else and i think we really underestimate the importance of just resting the brain it's not always about brain training you wouldn't run a marathon and then go back and you know just continue to do some walking exercise or something so it's great you know many of us are mentally challenged with the kind of work that we do We get home, we've got stimulation constantly around us. We've got digital inputs constantly around us. And I think personally, I think it's critically important to find times to just cut it off, cut the inputs that you don't need off. And it can be little things. You could be driving in the car. Do you have to have the radio on every single time? You know, like, is it all the time? Yeah, of course, we always want to listen to which (laughs) Which podcast? Sure. Absolutely. Exactly. But I think just resting the brain is something that we just really underestimate quite a bit. And considering is our sleep effective? What can we do to support better sleep habits? Really important.
0: That really back to the basics investment in yourself. I think um, you've both been able to really bring it home. We're just going to pause for a quick break. We'll be back right after this message. New diseases and the steady increase of the world's population have highlighted the growing need for healthcare experts. At Curtin University, our flexible postgraduate programs are taught by industry leaders and mix theory with practice to allow you to become a skilled and caring healthcare professional, even if you've never studied a health degree. Depending on your program, you'll have the chance to work on real research initiatives with an industry partner or take part in a practical placement at a student-run health clinic. Get started on your postgraduate journey today by visiting curtain.edu forward slash postgrad. And we're back. Virginia, if Alzheimer's is a syndrome of brain degeneration and that degeneration can happen over a long period of time, how will we know uh, to do something about Alzheimer's until it's maybe too late?
2: Yeah, so just um, just before the breakout, John was talking about all the continual insults, you know, over decades of your life. So all these continued insults, we actually break down the um, the brain capillaries that are essential to cognitive function and memory performance. So, you know, it's really really hard to to be able to tell, am I degenerating at the moment? And sometimes, you know, it varies individual to individual. You might get very minor behavioural changes, you know, changes in reasoning, justification, um, cognitive impairment. Um, But there are quite a few contemporary studies at the moment that are looking for different biomarkers um, to see these very early changes in the brain, whether it's through imaging, like you've all heard of MRI scans. Um, It could be through blood biomarkers. So we'll just simply take a blood test and see if there's changes in in different proteins, um, you know, with Brain degeneration, um, but there's still a lot of research to be done because there's there's research coming coming out every day where you know there's there's claimed biomarkers, but there's still no definitive biomarker that can tell us exactly when this degenerative process is occurring.
0: John, another reason why Alzheimer's has been in the headlines of late was after Australian actor Chris Hemsworth announced late last year that he was taking a break from acting after he found out he carried two genes that can increase the risk of Alzheimer's. Should we all be getting our DNA tested?
1: Well, the short answer to that question is I know I don't think we should. And in fact, I just remembered I read a little piece in the conversation recently about Chris Hemsworth and what that meant and how people should consider genetic testing. Um, but if I can give your audience a little bit of insight, so um, the gene is called ApoE, and you will inherit one gene from mum and dad when you're born. There's three versions of it, E2, E3, and E4, so you can have either two copies of one of them or a mixture of the two, that makes sense. If you are an individual that's inherited one or two copies of the ApoE4 gene, it gives you a much... A higher rate of or higher chance of getting Alzheimer's. It doesn't mean you definitely got to get it. It's just an increased risk, and there's lots of hypotheses as to why ApoE four promotes risk, but no one's really certain uh, as to why. Um, our group took a different perspective on how ApoE four might be increasing risk for Alzheimer's disease, and we linked it to uh, knowledge that's been around for a number of years. ApoE four is really very important for regulating the metabolism of fats in blood. So I'm taking you back out of the brain and into the bloodstream. And um, the ApoE will basically direct where the lipids go, where they're metabolized. And uh, in ongoing research that we have in the group, um, we're discovering, we haven't published this yet, so it's a bit insightful. Uh, We're discovering that the ApoE4 appears to be associated with a defect in the clearance of that fat amyloid complex. Now, if that's sitting around in blood for a longer period of time, then you've got to get that capillary dysfunction and perhaps an acceleration of the disease process. So we think that's the pathway by which APOE4 is increasing risk. But the question is, if you had that knowledge, what would you do about it? Well, you can't change your gene, right? But you can change your lifestyle. That's what Virginia was alluding to. So what we know so far is that certain components of diet can promote the amount of lipoprotein amyloid in blood. Too much of the Western style saturated fats is one of the drivers for that. We know that certain metabolic conditions such as diabetes can have a similar sort of effect. So we want to maintain good metabolic health. We don't want to be diabetic. and We want to control things like that. We know that exercise can promote the utilization of fats and amyloid in blood. So that's another good thing to have. So I would say to your listeners that the best thing to do is to adopt the lifestyle changes, which we know are beneficial. And if you're not sure what they are in terms of how they relate to health, just think of heart. Everybody knows what you've got to do to protect the heart. And basically, if it's healthy for the heart, it's healthy for the brain. If you want to be more curious and you want to find out whether you've got an E4, well, good luck to you. You can get a service provider to do that, but it just is going to tell you that you need to be even more careful. So an analogy is I come from a cancer family. I can go and look at some genes that say, I might be at high risk for cancer because of, but I know that those genes for cancer are all related to what I choose to do in my daily lifestyle choices. So, I don't bother getting the gene testing. I just try and adopt and I try and be exemplary around my lifestyle choices. And that's what I encourage your listeners to do.
0: That's a really empowering approach. Um, I know that some people have made comparisons of, you know, it's better to know and, and to make those changes rather than to kind of um, stick your head in the sand. But obviously, either way, it makes sense to make changes now, regardless.
1: Yes. I mean, you you have to ask for any type of testing, whether if you had the result, would it change management of risk or management of treatment? And if the answer is no, then why do the test?
0: This question goes to either of you or both. What are your hopes for the future treatment of this disease?
2: Well, ultimately we can there's no cure to, to Alzheimer's right now, so it sounds a bit cliche, but being able to cure um, the disease, because you know I've seen um, the devastating effects of, of, of dementia um, to individuals who obviously um, who have the disease, and family members, and you know the effects in society as well.
1: I'd like to see a um, I'd like to see uh, new preventative strategies that will um, slow or delay onset. I think it's probably inevitable as we live longer that people will succumb to this, but if we can slow progression, um, that's gotta be enormously helpful to the person living with the disease, to their caregivers, to the economy, um, and other biological factors will come into play. Um, I think that's the best hope. By the time we see Alzheimer's or most dementias clinically, we've gotta appreciate there's already been a lot of brain damage. Which you're not going to reverse, but if you can stabilise that rate of deterioration, that's the target.
0: So, is it ever too late to make some changes?
1: No, it's never too late to make some changes. Um, you know, we all know what eating healthy is like. And the other thing I would I would throw in is that, um, unless you've got a particular metabolic condition, your body will cue you in terms of what physiologically you need. And I get really interested in that people really try and micromanipulate their diet. But, you know, you can have a balanced diet that doesn't have to equate to what you're eating over a daily basis. It could be what's occurring over a week or several weeks. Um, Your body will cue you. And so often we ignore it if you're craving something, your body is telling you you need something for a reason. It might be because you need energy or whatever it might be. And, you know, I think we need to um, be better cued in to what is the driver for what we're wanting to eat. You know, don't just say, come I'm going to eat chocolate because I just love chocolate and I crave for it. But sometimes chocolate's a really good source of energy, and it's a really good neurostimulant, and it could be good in certain contexts, students studying, for example. So I think we need to be a little bit more in tune with what our body is actually suggesting we may need. The only time that fails is if you've got a certain type of metabolic condition. If you have diabetes and your body's not producing enough insulin or you're not utilising the insulin to utilise glucose effectively... You'll continually crave sugar because you've got a defect in that. But for the normal, healthy Australian going um, about around their business, you know, take the cue um, and you know what's got to cause damage and uh, avoid it. You know, I, I use another analogy, and you may want to edit this one out. But you know, if you my, the one is is if you have a wound on your hand somewhere, you wouldn't pick at it. Up and then put a Band-Aid on it, and then pick at it, and then put a Band-Aid on it, would you? And the vasculature and the microvasculature on the brain, I want you to think in that context, if you knew that alcohol or eating this particular meal is going to give those microvessels a bit of insult, and then you eat well, and you don't have alcohol, so they go into a recovery phase, and then you do it again, you wouldn't keep picking at the wound on your hand. So why do you keep insulting what's occurring within your body, which you don't feel acutely at the time? And that's the way we have to think. Every choice you make, everything you put in your mouth, every lifestyle you choose to do, has an impact on your physiology, on your functioning organs. And it's the cumulative effect of your lifestyle choices over years in life, which are gonna dictate whether you're at high risk of dementia, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and the list goes on. So if we can reinforce positive thinking about what we're doing on a daily basis, I think that's a great take home message.
0: Just finally, to both of you, I'd love to know what actually inspired you to become researchers in this area.
2: Well, I've always had a really, really good support team. I actually did my PhD with John. so. Um... You know, you do learn from the best and, and his passion is, you know, second to none, um, but we don't only research Alzheimer's disease. We, we've recently been looking into preventative strategies, look into um, multiple sclerosis and most recently um, chemo brain as well, which is um, cognitive impairment due to chemotherapy treatment um, for, for people with cancer. So, you know, there's a common theme there. It's, it's mostly um, brain disorders. That don't have a cure right now, so so that's that's my big driver to to hopefully make a difference, no matter how small, um, to the society.
1: Yeah, look, I go back to a, a concept around an old saying, which is the gift of giving. And you know, you may have heard that they say that the giver actually gets more benefit than those who receive the gift. And nothing excites me more, and to be working with. Um, people of such knowledge, I find it such a privilege, um, and to be blessed by people who are just wanting to improve the well-being of people's lives—that's what drives me. That's what pushes us through the cycles of not getting funding and and working on some of these harebrained um, research concepts that we have. You know, I think it's you know extraordinarily um, wonderful to be able to. Be pursuing lines of research inquiry which just may, just may, make things a little bit better for people who are facing, you know, really challenging health futures. I think that's pretty exciting, and you know, I celebrate people who make discoveries like that. You know, every single day.
0: Thank you for both coming in and for sharing the wealth of knowledge that you have in this space and many other spaces, um, and really striving to make those big changes in society. Best of luck with the study and the rest of your research. Thank you so so
1: much.
0: much. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. And don't forget to subscribe to The Future Of on your favourite podcast app. Bye for now.